We think we can just show back up after being absent for 10, 20 years and be like, hey guys, we're back, and like time hasn't passed. But it has, and we don't have the same influence that we used to. And we need to think about not just, quote, relentless diplomacy, but places where the best forms of American engagement are through military training and, you know, security-related deployments. Because what most countries need to have better economies, better democracy, is security. What they want is American training. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. We've gotten some questions from friends, and there have been a couple of questions our team has had about some international relations stories that have broken recently. So I wanted to talk about them with Molly McHugh, who is a writer and researcher of Russian influence and information warfare. Her articles have appeared in Politico, Wired, The Washington Post, Lawfare, and so many other publications. She's also an adjunct professor at Georgetown University and the lead author of a newsletter called greatpower.us. She's also just generally brilliant and lovely to talk to. Molly, thanks for making the time today. Ah, blushing softly <laughs> over here. All right, so let's dig in here. A couple of weeks ago, President Biden announced a deal to help Australia deploy nuclear-powered submarines, which infuriated France. France went as far as recalling its ambassadors from the U.S. and Australia, and President Macron even accused Biden of acting like Trump. I have a friend who lives in France who asked if we were going to talk about this, and indeed we are. So can you first help us understand why the U.S. went into this deal with Australia and what it means for national security uh, in the Indo-Pacific region? And then we can talk about why France was so enraged by this. Yeah, you know, look, this is there, there's a bunch of different aspects of this that I think are really important. And I think, you know, we talk a lot about when we're talking about our treaty ally, uh, like we talk a lot about NATO because NATO is the big thing that we care about and is so important yeah. to American power in the world. Um, but, you know, uh, sort of parallel to that, at least since World War II, has been what we call Five Eyes, right, which is. It's the English-speaking, so U.S., U.K., Canada, Australia, New Zealand. Primarily, this is an intelligence-sharing, uh, you know, cooperation and organization. Okay. Um, uh, but the the construct of these five nations uh, as sharing, sharing similar values, obviously a common language, um, but sort of acting together, um, uh, sort of obviously Australia not and New Zealand not in NATO being way off there in the Pacific, but... Um, uh, but it's sort of a very, it's a, it's a secondarily extremely important uh, organization to the United States, probably more important in the intelligence space than NATO. Within that, there's all these other relationships. I think starting um, starting in sort of the middle part of the Obama administration, when there was this pivot to Asia or whatever we were calling it then, we started doing more military cooperation with Australia, sending some Marines there, basing more people there kind of as the broader realignment of U.S. forces in the region, right? Like, can we keep all these people in Japan forever? Do they want us there forever? There's a lot of, you know, some of the islands in Japan where we've had huge U.S. service presences for a long time. Like, maybe we should shift those around. Um, there's been a lot more discussion with this uh, as we're talking more seriously about China projecting force further from China that we obviously need uh 
more, and I mean, Asia's hard. The Pacific is enormous if you actually look at it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in map terms, there's not a lot of land to base things on in right. a lot of places. Um, so we have we have limited options and we need to be more creative about what we're doing in a lot of these places. So, you know, the the increased relationship with Australia is super important in so many different respects. But it, but especially when it comes to China. Especially when we're talking about what China is now, what it will become, and how we need to uh, position ourselves and enhance and position our alliances to deal with what we know will be a threat and a challenge. So the I think the the core piece of this, which is we we the alliance of things, however you want to define that, you know, needs to help Australia quickly close capabilities gaps that that you know it's it's a despite being a, a large landmass is not a, a huge country. We need to help them close some of the capability gaps that we know we're going to need them to have better reach on. The submarine thing has been a big focus of them for a long time. Uh, the the kerfuffle here has been that they had a, a pre-existing contract with France, which was a significant amount of money, almost $60 billion, um, for diesel-powered submarines that France was extremely late delivering on. It was unclear when they would. So uh, as part of this new alliance of things, it, the U.S., the U.K., and Australia, their launch deal was this, now we're all going to help so they basically, Australia so, get these nuclear submarines instead of these crappy diesel submarines, and this yeah. will be really important for all of us in the Pacific. So I think that those two pieces of this, which is this deal is super significant for Australia, and the fact that, that we have sort of plussed up this, and you will get submarines too, you will get really serious submarines, mm. like serious... Nuclear powered, and that doesn't right. mean they have nuclear warheads or no. weapons. It means that they're they, they have nuclear reactors to power them. They're, yeah, they're they're much better submarines. Yeah. which which much farther capability and more I mean, difficult to detect. More difficult to detect, like much better things for them to have. If we're looking at fifty years of right. of confrontation and conflict, um, much better, much better. Essentially, they're better submarines that the French were going to be able to build and provide for them. Correct. Okay, and so this was sort of this launch deal of this new, we're uh, all these things now. Right. Um, which, again, I'm not, I'm not really sure why the three is its own grouping. Like, yeah, why did, did we UK not... Yeah, get in this deal? What do they have to do They're part it? of the defense. I mean, like, it's the whole, like, some of the queen is still in, like, I don't, whatever the Commonwealth uh, is doing. I don't know. Right. Okay. But again, then why aren't, why don't we have why Canada? Why, like, yeah. why wouldn't we include yeah. New Zealand? Like, it seems it, very odd. It is. But I think the odd. odd piece is not the deal itself, which is smart. Like, whatever the... Whatever the pieces of the deal are, smart for us, which Good are trying to realign necessary capabilities in defense and intelligence cooperation in the Pacific. All of that good. Good, mm -hmm. good, good. Mm -hmm. I think the awkward weirdness came from this bizarre justification language during the disaster in Afghanistan withdrawal. Uh, oh no no we must like we must leave Afghanistan it's the beginning step of the pivot the new US strategy in the world which will be about looking at China it's like okay well you're saying this but what's the but you have you've announced nothing about yeah. what we're doing so it was like okay we need to announce okay. something well, what are we going to do so they had this in the pipe and they sort of pushed it up and now there's a bunch of stories coming out about like well we meant everybody meant to call Macron but it kind of you know they mm. got dropped off the radar because it was this rushed announcement of things and again it was all going to happen it had been discussed but this was just this, everybody wanted to change the headline. And they did, only they not did. in the way they expected. So I think what you're looking at now is this like horrible situation of you really just want a mommy to go into the room and be like, 
okay, America, say you're sorry. You know, you should have talked to your allies first about this thing. Who are very angry and feel like they've been stabbed in the back. And France, like, quit your whining. You just need to tell the U.S. what you need out of this. Like, Mm. how are they helping you replace this? All you care about is the money. It's why you're selling shit to Russia. It's why you're doing this. Like, all you care about is your defense dollars. Huge industry for France. Mm. Um, So how are we helping you replace this income? Are we helping you Mm. sell your planes, which aren't flying themselves into the ground, it turns out? Uh, to other countries, are we, you know, what, where, where are we helping you make defense deals to make up this gap? Understanding it's hugely important for the French economy, right? Yeah. But that's a conversation. So we should have. We, we should before. be doing that now. We should have done that before. And yeah. and Australia needs to stop going like nah, 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 which yeah. is kind of what they're doing. And uh, so France is just being pissy. It's part of the broader Macron like, we want to be king of Europe thing that's happening. And, um, but isn't it, it's super unhelpful to me Uh, and and honestly like super unhelpful to me. I think the thing everybody needs to do constantly, I think the the reason this has become, it it so quickly became this explosive and raging, we're withdrawing our ambassadors. This has everything to do with money, right? It it has to do with money, but it it also has to do with the sensitivities of the Uh, things, right? Right. And I think what we all tend to forget is, uh, because nobody paid any attention to it then, but the Obama administration was particularly bad at this, and this is all these same people. And the the best example of this that you can point to is, um, you know, we had the Bush administration had put in place these missile defense deals in Poland and Romania to sort of have forward deployed U.S. Uh, missile defense batteries and, you know, something about Iran. Like, who knows what the justification was? But, um, you know, Russia didn't want that stuff mm. right there in what mm. they count as like their stuff. And so they're making a big a big fuss about it. And eventually the Obama administration agreed to not do those, to not deploy those batteries. Some of them now have been, I mean, like, you know, in time everything changes. But when they made the announcement that they were not going to do, which was huge, so significant for like the Eastern NATO, out, the new NATO partners to have this, to, to feel the backing of like the more significant air defense systems, the planning for this had been really significant for this, for that entire front across NATO. And... When the Obama administration decided to, whatever, cancel, pause, roll back, whatever their language was, <laughs> they didn't talk to the allies, for like those uh, allies first, right? So as they were making this announcement. There's a little deja vu happening. Like on TV. Uh, they were like, oh, shit, nobody talked to the Poles of the remains. And they the like French. put somebody on the plane to go fly over. But the guy was still like on the plane while the announcement was being made. And the Poles and the Romanians and others were like pissed. And so there's this sense again of... It's not necessarily, uh, you know, that the thing is always disagreed with. Sometimes it is. But that we're not engaging our allies. And there was this sense on Afghanistan. we're kind of burning them publicly. Also. Yeah, which is very embarrassing. Yeah, and then then we have to have these dumb public debates about, no, no, we absolutely talked to the allies. Did we? And so there's just this this sense in Europe, particularly, it's a particular sensitivity amongst the countries that count themselves as more important within Europe, like France and Germany. Um, that we're not they we that we don't treat them with the okay respect the that the Biden administration claims is so important to them. Okay, right? but I have a question yeah. for you, which is a, which is actually it's a it's a point that my friend raised, which I think is really uh, important and and valid, which is that the EU mm-hmm. right is primarily about economics. One hundred percent. It's pri- it's not about defense. No, and so it seems like a rather natural move for the U.S. and the U.K. to 
who have superior militaries to work with a strategic ally in the Indo-Pacific region to essentially put some kind of a check on China's expansionist, yep. uh, you know, actions. Um, it, that seems natural to me because that's primarily a strategic military decision, and that really has nothing to do with economics. And, and so, it's way more valuable. Just to, as a quick so, aside, like it's like the U.S. U.K. deal with Australia yeah. is way more valuable than the French deal with Australia, even though we're all in the same bucket of allies, because that shows that this has military and policy backing, and it's not just a defense deal, which yeah. is what France is. It's just selling the stuff. And at the end of the day, the United States wants Australia to have the best submarines possible if our goal is to check China, right? 100%. Ultimately, that's our strategic interest, and that's why we did Absolutely. this. Okay, so I love you, France, personally. I love Paris. Uh, sorry we hurt your feelings. This is not a good look. We shouldn't have handled like, this this way, but they shouldn't have handled this this way. This, like, weird temper tantrum is so embarrassing to back down but that's from. that's very French, though. We it is super that. French, but French. again, like, just call and be like, yeah. Very nice announcement. You owe us $75 billion of defense sales, right? <laughs> like there's plenty of places that want to buy the French stuff. But where's, you the, know? Drama, where's the drama in that? I know there's no drama in that. <laughs> but it's just, it's 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 all wrapped up in this broader, you know, yeah. Macron defense okay. of Europe discussion. And like, right. and, it, and it's, so it's, it's really painful to watch. And for me, especially it's painful to watch because, you know, in especially the last decade, but yeah. during the entirety of Putin, you know, a, a Russian goal, a core narrative line of their disinformation campaigns uh, and their intelligence work across Europe and the United States has been, and we all know this, seeding distrust and division amongst the alliance. Mm, we all know Got it, it, right? And so, like, there's these fractures. We know every time we blow up at each other instead of Russia picking up the phone it. and having this, like, hey, you owe us some money, like— we know this is what our adversaries want, is yeah. all of us squabbling amongst each other, the the parallel structures to NATO that will then weaken NATO mm -hmm. in terms of, like, France trying to build its own army or whatever. Like, it's yeah. just like, we know all this stuff is good for our adversaries and terrible yeah. for us, terrible for confidence amongst the alliance and ourselves and yeah. our populations. And yet no one can resist the urge to do the thing and again, I'm equal criticism here on Biden people for not doing what was obviously sure. necessary before you announce the thing. Yeah. And to the French for just being hysterically stupid. Well, there was another country, uh, needless to say, that was very unhappy about this move, and that was China. It was China. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. what's the TLDR on why, <laughs> why? I mean, obviously, China's not happy, but would it does it matter that they're not happy? <laughs> It it doesn't it doesn't matter that they're not happy. Um, you know, China operates on this much longer horizon mm. of planning, which we've um, talked about, which we've talked about a lot. And yeah. um, so, it, do they constantly obsess about analyze, psychoanalyze, microanalyze U.S. decision making? What other people are doing? Yes, absolutely. But does it alter in any way that arc of of fifty year plan? No. And so I think. Would they prefer that the, the Australians not have nuclear power? Yes, they would prefer the Australians not have these submarines. They would love them to buy lesser submarines or no submarines at all. Um, but I don't think it it is in any way changing their planning, which is consistent advance and projection of Chinese naval power um, and beyond. But for now, it's sort of they're not going to retaliate in any, in any meaningful way. Um, I don't think retaliation. I think. It's it's a complex question. I mean. It's a complex question for Australia. Uh, in the same way we obsess about Russia stuff, 
Australia has to obsess about China stuff because mm. it's right there. There's much more Chinese focus on a media, lot more people there too. influence, disinformation, funding things in Australia. Um, uh, so they, it, but it's so I think there'll be consequences in those domains, mm, like some okay. trade response or economic impact. And Australia uh, obsesses about that because obviously China's right there. It's a big trade and economic partner. Tons of Chinese money is constantly pouring into Australia for reasons we can imagine. Um, everyone wants that money. And uh, so I think there will be, they will probably feel some pressure for this, but it is good that we have put this structure in place that is not just a bilateral defense deal, but has that sort of, but the queen wants it aspect. And um, that that I think domestically also makes it a bigger deal for them and helps them with this. And China's not going to be happy about it piece. Um, So I think, again, I think, I do think the AUKUS, a U K U S is the acronym for this. I think originally it had the two U's, and then they were like, oh. and then they were like, take that U out. Oh, it, it looks the- even stupider. <laughs> you know. Um, so as, as, as terrible as the acronym is, I do think that the idea of the structure is good. It's just again, like, why is it done this yeah. way? Why didn't you do it some other way? But like, yeah. it's great. Like, just okay. let's just move ahead we're now. Here, it happens, and somebody fix the thing with the French, yeah. please, because yeah. this is ridiculous, ridiculous. During his speech at the United Nations General Assembly, uh, President Joe Biden called for relentless diplomacy, air quotes, on climate change, the pandemic, and efforts to stem the expanding influence of China and Russia. So first of all, what was your take on the speech? And maybe is there a TLDR for everybody who didn't see the speech? Um, I think the speech was fine. I think the speech was not particularly noteworthy in the expanse of UN speeches, which is not a bad thing necessarily. Like, Usually if you're giving a, a noteworthy speech at the UN, it's because something really bad is about mm-hmm. to or has just happened. Um, I think it was a fine speech for him to give. I think it did lay out these points of things that he wants to keep making, that his administration wants to keep making. Um, and I think they really, really, really wanted to move on from this Afghanistan <laughs> discussion. Mm. Uh, and uh, from from all the points of Afghanistan discussion mm-hmm. and and talk about other things. So, you know, it's it was fine. Okay. As what it was, I think it was a, a fine a fine speech. It will not be noted in any in any history books in any significant way. Okay. Uh last but not least, the German elections and the far right. So yeah. during Germany's national election, uh, which just happened, the center left Social Democrats narrowly won a plurality of seats in the Bundestag, edging out the center right Christian Democratic Union. Uh, or the Christian Social Union Coalition built by outgoing Chancellor Angela Merkel. And it's going to be a while. It could be weeks, could be months before they form a government. Um, But what is going to be the impact of Angela Merkel no longer being the Chancellor of Germany, which is like, like, whoa. Yeah. It's lady been there a long time. Yeah. Um, and in a good, and, and, steady and, and way. And in a good, steady way. Mm-hmm. And in a way that even last year, this time last year, I remember talking with my Lincoln Project colleagues like, no, at this moment, Angela Merkel is the leader of the free world. Mm-hmm. Certainly not the president of the United States. I mean, so mm-hmm. so the fact that she's mm-hmm. no longer going to be in this role is, is it's, a, it's a big deal. I think we're maybe uh, underestimating <laughs> what a big deal this is going to oh, be. Oh, really? Um, look, there's, there's, there's big shifts. And I think... Was Merkel perfect? You know, was she always like? Obviously, Germany is not great on Russia at any mm-hmm. at any point. But like, 
what's behind her is significantly less good. And um, mm. so on the things where, even on the things where we wished Germany had been stronger or had more fortitude, uh, she was the the best. Like she represented some of the best thinking in yeah. in the various options. And I I really worry about what comes next without and just without the clout of the personality. Like whoever follows her is not going to have 15 years of yeah. of I've been in charge of this uh, of the largest economy in Europe. You she know, got big shoes to fill. Huge shoes to fill. And um, you know, and when you when we sort of look at the, the these three stories together, right? You have the French, whatever Macron is doing, and then you have relentless diplomacy, whatever that is, and um, and sort of like the the positioning of that as well. I guess we no longer need American power in the world. We're gonna like we don't have diplomats or a full state, but we're gonna do diplomacy anyway. Okay, um, like we absolutely do need hard power. You realize this, right? Not sure. Um, and then you have the shifts in Germany. And this is like, it's sort of a troubling array of things in terms of we all know the threats we are up against in terms of, as Joe Biden himself said in his UN speech, what Russia and China are trying to do and all the little glommers on that, that hang around them. Uh, we all know what they're trying to do. We all know. It's very clear. You know? and, which is? Uh, which is uh, break apart this idea that democracy is the, you know, uh, penultimate, ultimate system of government that you aspire toward. That self-governance that is... people should rule themselves. Yeah. That representative government is important. Um, that there are certain rights that are in, inalienable. That there should be personal liberties and freedoms that shouldn't be sacrificed to the good of the state. Uh, you know, all these different things that we just really, really take for granted. We really take for granted. And... Um, so then on the other side of their very organized efforts, like you can, you know, people can microanalyze Putin all they want. They can say China's way more important. Screw Russia, which is totally not the way that you should look at this uh, all they want. But very organized efforts. And what they have been particularly successful in doing is recruiting Americans, Westerners, to be like the front of what they do, right? This is the influence of the money, you particularly mean both China from China. And Russia. Absolutely. Yeah. From from Russia, it's a much weirder yeah. interests, money, corruption, groups, thought like it's a much yeah. weirder nexus of things. But from China, it's pretty much, hey, here's this bag of money. Would you like the money? Then you will be an asset of Chinese soft power. Yeah. And people are like, cool, can I take the big bag of free money? Awesome. Yeah. Like whether you're the NBA or Hollywood or U.S. academic institutions or a whole array of companies, um, they're happy to take the money and not talk about the few specific things China tells them not to talk yeah. about, right? Um, so it's just a, it's a very, so we see all this. Like we see the way that they are recruiting us yeah. to be the front of their influence. Um, and on the other side is nothing. And this is what concerns me. Yeah. And it's the same thing when we talk about like January 6th connected stuff, Steve Bannon and Trump stuff. On that side, in terms of the global, far right, disruptive, blah, blah, huge networking, just network effects of all these guys talking together and inviting each other to their conferences and CPAC Brazil and CPAC Hungary. And like, why the hell is, you know, an American political action in committee. In Hungary. Yeah, with, uh, don't even get me started. Yeah, that's um, a different thing. You know, but, but it's, the, ne the nexus is extremely powerful yeah. uh, and we ignore it too much. We yeah. downplay it too much because Americans don't give a crap about Orban or Nigel Farage or whatever. Well, also it's the residue of American exceptionalism. Yes. It can't happen here. It sure, it can't happen, happen here. here. Yeah. And and so this like this 
and and against that, on the not crazy far right side, is nothing. There's no money. There's no bag of money. You know, there's no there's no like Chinese billionaire handing out money for people doing things on that side. Like, if, no, because. Who has an interest in funding right. the not crazy thing? Nobody. Only, apparently. Well, actually, everybody. But it's but the interest is in keeping things calm and safe and secure. And they're just as that's not sexy. Everybody's underestimating that's, this organization. Yeah. And I think it's the same globally in terms of all these values and things that we think are I- immovable. There is significant money in organization and military power <laughs> 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 on the side of disruption of yeah. all of these things for a system in which the voices of the few matter way more than the voices of the many. Yeah. Well, it's also easier to destroy than it is to build. Yes. And they have and 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 the echo effects of that that find champions in weird corners of things like all the weird techno libertarianism that kind of mm dominates Silicon Valley, whatever is there, you know, billionaire think. There's a lot of agreement that mm. the richest, smartest, most handsome guys in the room should be the ones mm. making all the decisions, not these rabble rousing people who are voting on things, right? Like, and this argument that China and Russia are constantly trying to make that you need centralization. Uh, and you get, I mean, you get, the Chinese are very successful at getting people to tell these dumb stories of things they do where it's like, look, China built 50,000 solar panels in five minutes to fight climate change. And if only we had a centrally organized economy and, and command structure, we could do this. And it's like, stop printing these stories, people. Like, yeah. do not understand what they're getting you to do. But this idea that you need centralized control to fight these big challenges, mm. right? Like the, to fight the climate change pandemic, you know, whatever the next big thing is that we're focused on. This narrative is very successful in ways that we don't pay attention to. And you hear it from younger people who are more skeptical of democracy and capitalism. Yeah. You hear and they don't understand like they don't think they're sounding like the Chinese. It's no, just because this, they don't know where it's coming from. And and it's just so it's to me that the challenge of all three of these stories is the places where the defense of what we have should be the strongest and most organized and most connected despite our differences, despite our squabbles, despite the sibling rivalries and, you know, we don't want to go to your wedding. And the intracaucus fights over the number of dollars that should be in this thing or that thing. And who's hosting the thing and, like, who gets to be in the middle of the photo. Yeah. Despite all of this. All of those are luxuries. Yes. Like, we just need to, like, listen more to our our, our Baltic allies who are like, yes, all of that is nice, but we are worried about being absorbed by Russia tomorrow. And um, we just need to put all that stuff away, stop acting like the stuff that we have is immutable and understand that it's this critical pivot point in our national democracies and in our international structures of this idea that that representative governments can be are, are and will be the most significant force in the forever, world forever. Um you know, we're close to not getting that right. And I think one of the places where we are doing we the United States are doing this the worst is with Europe because there's like, I think there's not a good understanding of the economics of Europe, of the Russian market aspects. I mean, Russia's not that big a thing, but like the, it's like the military weirdness and the influence money and, and then the way that they're kind of between China and America and we're like trying to force them to make choices about this. And they're like, they're, they've, they're now understanding like China was never a really great choice. And like, but so what, like, what are we, how are we then organizing collective economic might for what? 
Like yeah. for what? What are we pointing it toward? And right now there's nobody pointing it toward anything because we're Ooh. like, we're withdrawing from the world. We're leaving the space. You constantly hear people arguing on things like Belarus, on what what's happening uh, on the border of, of NATO, where like the Russian military districts are expanding and Russian military power is expanding. And Belarus, with the backing of Russia, is like shoving migrants across mm. the borders into Europe um, to destabilize these countries. But like significant multi-tiered, multi-faceted hybrid campaigns against these countries to create this kind of stuff that it's hard for governments to deal with, right? You know, all these things are happening... And there's not enough response hmm. to it. And no one's really paying attention to it enough. And there's, there's just no cohesiveness to how we, yeah. how we look at and address these threats. And so all three of these things to me come together as we're all trying to say the right things. But like we're not going to stick around to save the world through climate yeah. change or pandemics yeah. or vaccines if we actually are right now leaving a vacuum in the world yeah. where no one is setting the terms, where our adversaries are quickly advancing to set the terms, and where we think we can just show back up after being absent for 10, 20 years mm. and be like, hey guys, we're back, yeah. and like time hasn't passed, but it has, and we don't have the same influence that we used to. And we need to think about not just, quote, relentless diplomacy, but um, places where the best forms of, uh, of American engagement are through military training and and you know security related deployments because what most countries need to have better economies, better democracy is security. Yeah. What they want is American training. They want their one guy to be able to go and train in a US defense facility to go back and take over their army, right? They want like the four special forces trainers will send yeah. to train their special forces guys, you know. And so sometimes it's just this this like misperception of everything has to be diplomacy or else it's like perceived as, I don't know, like Bush era aggression yeah. is silly. And I, and I don't see what I have not seen in the past decade of watching how we try to muster our resources against Russia and China is an understanding of how these things work together. Oh, man. And actually that Millie story I, yeah. with the China calls mm -hmm. is a good example of this because yeah. – while no one which, would— The Millie story, which we talked about on Politicology Plus last week with yeah. Mike and Susan, which was like, you know, I I, I promised them that I would ask you <laughs> <laughs> whether, uh, you know, because I saw I saw it as a really big deal mm -hmm. um, that, that, that Millie did what he did. But I have zero qualifications to judge whether or not, you know, military culture. I have no idea how to measure that. It just sounded like really bad to me in terms of a chain of command, you know, uh, structure. So for, am I right? Am I wrong? What, what, how, did you, how did you read what Millie did there? And listeners, if you're curious about this, go back to listen to that Politicology Plus segment from last weekend and you'll know what we're talking about. Yeah. So, I mean, the short version is uh, right before – transfer of power, Millie yeah. calls Chinese counterparts to- Chairman of the Joint Chiefs say, of Staff, General No, 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 Millie. we're not going to nuke you. And everybody's like, wait, what? Yeah. Who said anything about nuking anyone? Yeah. Um, and so- uh, Suddenly somebody said nuke, and what? <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. And so I think, you know, there's many aspects of that story that are interesting and weird. Um, I, I do think it was a big deal only in the category of, I mean, there's so many of these things that we don't, that we didn't see. And now, like, pieces of more of them are coming out. Like, there was also the story this past couple of weeks of this, uh, which I think uh, Assange's lawyers put out as part of his, like, please don't extradite me to America defense 
Um, but that like Pompeo, when he was at the CIA, was like trying to to script yeah. all these kidnapping plots of Assange from the freaking Ecuadorian embassy in London. I do think that we're going to keep finding out these like crazy things that were happening in this administration yeah, yeah, because yeah, they yeah, operated yeah. like a frat boy conspiracy the For entire sure. time, right? For sure. So I think there's a lot of the stuff that then Trump was doing that was the same, but Trump level. So it's like, but you're what? And like, we remember way back at the beginning before Trump and Kim Jong uh, Jong Un were mm-hmm. were besties mm-hmm. um, when he was like threatening to blow up yep. North Korea. You know he he asked for for military planning for his like well can't we just take over the whole country with yeah. every special forces guy we have like yeah. can't we just send <laughs> seals and they were forced to write this stuff down where it's like you know we could but like you know seventy five percent of them probably die and it's like nah let's put it on paper anyway and it's just like Jesus wow. Christ so I think. In in history, there will be more of these yeah. like crazy shit things that Trump was asking for and doing, oh, yeah. enabled by Pompeo, others. Um, so in the context of that, I don't think the story was that big a deal. Okay. Because what I, but I think what was important. But is it more of a like a well, let's make an exception this kind time for like let's not judge him too harshly because there was a madman in the Oval Office or if it had been a sane person in the Oval Office if Millie had done this would it have been a more severe breach of the chain of command well I don't know that it was a breach of the chain of command and that's the part where I maybe disagree with some of the stories I think um, I think that uh, you know we would not count it at all as odd if the Secretary of State called his foreign minister counterpart to bat down a rumor or you know a concern sure um, and, and for the same reason, we shouldn't, we shouldn't question these discussions on the military side. I mean, in many cases, our best relationship with troublesome countries, uh, is through the military to military direct relationships mm. because these aren't elected people. They don't change every two minutes. You yeah. know, it's not going to be a total change of ideology. These people like grow up together. If, if, if we're talking about our allies, they do go to military yeah. schools together. They know each other. Um, and if we're talking about adversaries, those lines of communication between Milly and Gerasimov, the Russian equivalent of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, um, and, and Milly and his Chinese counterpart, these are very important lines of direct engagement. Do I love like do I love that 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 they're like but there's no option. You have yeah. to talk to them. Yeah. Um and those lines of discussion, because they are outside of politics, because it's seen as you know, dude bro, engaging dude bro, basically. So they have this more like, yes, we speak yeah. same language, you know, um, uh, more straightforward. We all we all play same game here. Uh, relationship dynamics. Um, I, I think those are really important. So what's interesting, what was most interesting to me about that China Millie story was either the Chinese were getting, I mean, I think we want this to be a story about Trump, about Trump being insane. But it seems more likely that, in fact, the Chinese were getting weird intelligence mm. that they made, they apparently were overreacting to. Like, did did they really think we were going to nuke China? This is a nonsense. Mm. This is a nonsense idea, right? Like, this is not going to yeah. happen. And um, so if they really were overreacting to that, that says some very interesting things about Chinese intelligence in uh, my mind. True. So I think the Millie aspect of the story is is less important. Okay. Different in the context of all the other media the other he's been doing on himself. Yep. But, um, uh, but I think this... This like again, this sort of sometimes misunderstanding of what these relationships are, uh, like the 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 direct military to mili- military conversations between like the U.S. Yeah. and Russia have been consistently important at de-escalating conflict. So uh, as much as I don't love it, 
it's important. So I want to just that's that's the end of the questions here. But, <laughs> but, but I have but I have a but I have a question, um, uh, which is well, basically this is just my my read from going back to your earlier yep. point about how like you know um, we are unprepared for what is happening for the vacuum that we are leaving, and as we turn to look inwards and try to solve all our own domestic problems. Um, that's an invitation to uh, our adversaries to take advantage of this moment and stage all kinds of nefarious activity. So my sense from you know having run political campaigns for 18 years is that Americans generally don't think about the rest of the world because they don't think about the rest of the world. They don't understand. Uh, I mean, and 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 maybe nor should they at least be expected to have a you know a college level understanding of international affairs and national security and global power dynamics. Certainly, we don't. We, you know, it would be nice if they did, but but um, but my sense is that most people only pay attention and only understand the ways power is moving around the globe and and the very serious ways that our way of life is being threatened when a candidate for public office tells them how they should think about it and generally yeah. and generally they adopt the views based on based on um existing party tribal dynamics that are far more cultural than they are um uh based on any any you know accurate read of of the world stage and so we do tend to think because we are geographically isolated and we have the luxury of not having to pay attention we have everything imported for us because we're so com- we're, we're so comfortable and accustomed to living life the way we want that we don't bother to look outward and and realize that there are there are there we have enemies on the global stage we can call them adversaries yeah. they we have enemies. people who mm-hmm. want to destroy our way of life and to say that and to talk about it out loud Often can get can get uh, marked as fear mongering or as you know as war mongering um, or feeding the military industrial complex, right? Which is what a lot of people and fine there there is plenty of truth that that trope exists for a reason, but I worry that because we're so comfortable and this actually goes back to the conversation I had with Tom Nichols, uh, because we've been so fortunate and successful and we are now so comfortable that. Americans are not equipped to gauge whether and how we intervene on the global stage to defend uh, our way of life and the idea of democracy, which is in peril around the yep. globe. And that I, I don't know what to make of you know the implications of what I'm now saying out loud, which is like these public opinion polls about what Americans think about China or Russia are basically garbage mm-hmm. because – because I think most people aren't equipped to 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 judge, and um, I don't know. I'm that's my that's my rant. But I wonder. No. I wonder if you. First of all, that's that is my that is just my experience having worked in campaigns where we are sort of actively trying to change public opinion yep. on any given thing mm-hmm. and get a person elected, get people to take action based on that public yep. opinion. And I don't know if that is indeed the the. The truth, uh, if that is how it really is, and whether or not you read it the same way, and what that bodes for our future, and what we can do about that. So I'd make a couple points, some of which harken back to your conversation with Tom Nichols. <laughs> um, and uh, 
some of which are things that I drone on about on and on. Uh, but I think th- there's a few things here that I think are really important. I think number one, and the point I will make over and over again, particularly to the Biden administration, is um, you cannot do foreign policy by public opinion polling. If you are, you're doing it wrong and you don't understand what your freaking job is in the White House. The most significant job the president of the United States has is foreign policy. Like, he's the only one who gets to do that. You know, like, he's the one who sets the thing for that. It's very hard for Congress to restrain, as we learned with the Bush administration, any of that, like, or or, uh, with the Trump administration, you know. And, And that is his job. And this idea that that is reflecting what some dude in Montana or Iowa or Florida or New Hampshire thinks is just stupid. Your job is to sell it to people. And if you can't put together a vision of what America should be in the world based on our values and our interests, values first, then interests, uh, and sell it to people, what the hell are you doing in this job? Mm. And so this, it's the, the idea that it goes the other way is stupid. And just like completely, <laughs> where are my people going so right. that I may lead them? And just, and this is where you see this bizarre like left-right landslide of isolationism, yeah, which is becoming more lazy and more common, um, because nobody wants to do the work of selling it to people anymore, yeah. of explaining it to people anymore. And I think you know, again, because we have this beautiful, vast country of opportunity and wealth and whatever. Like Americans are less likely than others to get out in the world and look around, other than like Mexico partying or whatever. Um, and it's so important that we do because yeah. you see it. You you form these you know these bonds and engagements with other places. You understand the commonalities. You know this is why you see all the guys who served in Afghanistan fighting so hard to get Afghans out and help them. Um, because you understand on a human level why all of this is important. So I think this whole aspect of foreign policy frustrates me, this like this idea that it somehow reflects public opinion. Like, no, like yeah. it's the other way around. Uh, and that's how it should be. Like, I mean, you don't want a population that's like aggressive and wants to be like invading other places all the time, right? Yeah. It's, go- it's good that Americans have this innate instinct of, you know, we're over here, you're over there. We don't really want to be in your business all the time, but we will be if it's important. That's a good stance to start from. Um, I think the frustration aspects then become, I think a real challenge on this in terms of informing Americans. And again, Tom Nichols had a good segment about this, like his parents listening to the news and reading the paper, right? That's right, yeah. Is media and the fact that our news is garbage and there's just no way around it. Like, yes, if you sit down and read the front section of the New York Times from cover to cover, which basically no one does, uh, you will have a sense of some stuff going on in the world, limited stuff's going on in the world. BBC is pretty good. BBC is good, but like you have to go and search but for you it. You have to look at like, it. It's not it going to show up in front of you. Yeah. And I think most American network news uh, and cable news, um, NPR is an exception in, mm. in depending on how local stations program things. Um, and, and PBS NewsHour is good at covering yeah. the world yeah. in specific ways. Um, but... But our American news is garbage at covering the world. We don't tell anybody yeah. anything. Yeah. anything yeah. Unless it's a, it's like, oh, there's, sometimes it's something, there's a landslide in Chile. Who cares? Yeah. Like, yeah. but what else is going yeah, on but what in else Chile? Is going on? Well, yeah, but that, but that, but they cover those things because it's clickbait, because it right. gives eyeballs, drives exactly. clicks. And it's basically, it's the incentive structure, the very corrupt, toxic incentive structure right. of the news media to Being begin owned with. by an air conditioning company yeah. or whatever. So there's this media aspect. And then yeah. the, the, maybe the, the. The th- the third thing I would add in there in terms of the comfort, no perspective problem uh, is something I also talked about when we talked about Afghanistan, which is um, it kind of infuriates me that the language has become this digital Dunkirk thing mm. because it wasn't Dunkirk. 
when when Dunkirk happened, the British government asked its citizens to put their lives on the line to That's rescue right. British soldiers and foreign soldiers and bring them back to British soil. Which was a phenomenal film, by the way. Great film, phenomenal great film. historical episode. Yeah. Like yeah. Churchill at the most Churchillian. Yeah. Um, but understanding that if you ask people to serve, they will answer. And American leadership does not do this anymore. Like, who asked us to serve during the pandemic? Nobody. Mm -hmm. Nobody asked you to do anything people organized on their own. Who asked Americans to save Afghan lives? Certainly not the government. It was totally independent action. And this idea that, like, you know, we're all sitting around, and, like, the, the, the retraction of the, of the household view in America to their fence line. Mm -hmm. My 401k is fine. My family is fine. Mm -hmm. My job is fine. Whatever the, the metrics you're using for your own comfort and success are that allow us to be lazy about caring about all these other things is because no one asks you to look outside the fence. Well, you know what? I also blame the destruction of truth for that. Because yeah. when the world is uncertain and you don't know what to trust, you retreat inward until the only thing that you can trust is right in front of you. I, I blame the erosion of the idea of truth, and, and Facebook has a lot to do with that. Yes, it does. There's a lot of different aspects <laughs> to this. But, and and the, the changing of what the structure yeah. used to be, like what do you look to for, yeah. for truth and guidance, yeah. that's shifted a lot in American society in the last 40 years. Um, but this the, the sort of the, the gaping vacuum at the top yeah. of people trying to explain things to us as opposed to reflecting what we're saying to them yeah, as if this is leadership yeah. is – gonna kill us and there's just no way around any of that so this like lack of of calling for service calling for civic engagement even when it is so clear that's the gap that needs yeah. to be filled yeah. drives me bananas when we know what the value is like yeah. anyway this it's a, it's a it's a long rant that I can go on and on we and on with but we need common common experience Tom had a couple of really great ideas in his book which were not super like his was it, much shorter than what mine would be but it, it was that, like, like the six weeks of, of service yeah, six that weeks people of service, would do basically so that every I think there human be a being year. in this country has some kind of a shared experience totally and maybe it's so maybe it's six weeks like yeah. three times or something sure. but I think it should be a service year of some kind it's good for us yeah. it's you know it's it, there's so many people like, you know, I grew up in Idaho, which is it, it's different now, but it, it's not a state of overwhelming opportunities in terms of changing your station in life. And a lot of people still choose the military mm -hmm. as their way to get education that they can't mm -hmm. otherwise afford to get training in fields they otherwise don't have access to. Most of those that come back to Idaho, but they do it with real economic prospects um, and, 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 you know, a sense of purpose uh, of who they are and what they did. And um, like that, it is very hard to choose that life. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's not something that should be, it's not for everybody. I don't think we should do universal should military service. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, but I do think we should have universal service. Mm -hmm. But just this idea of you yeah. need, like your country does all this shit for you. Yeah. And you're all, the only thing you do for them should not be taxes. Yeah. It should be an understanding of who you are and what they do for you. Yeah. Like, what is the training the government, your government will give to you? Yeah. Um, and there's just, it's hard. If you want to find those opportunities, it's incredibly hard as a, mm -hmm. as a civilian to find ways in which you can actually do service. Mm. And um, it should not be. Yeah. <laughs> it's just sort of the silly yeah. thing. And I think we miss this early life opportunity 
uh, uh, with the value of civics to engage people and make them understand like the government isn't this like group of shadowy bureaucrats sitting off somewhere doing things. It's like they actually are thinking about you and your family and your life and how that impacts you. And, uh, and here's your way to like be connected to some of that and having ongoing civil defense structures, whatever you want to call them is so valuable. People want to participate in things. Everybody wants to be a part of something bigger than themselves. And the government, our government right now is leaving this hole, which is being filled by militias and goons and Facebook groups and, you know, crazies and QAnon and whatever, and then we're like, why, why is this happening? Well, it's like, because you're not giving anybody an alternative. <laughs> um, and yeah. so it just, it frustrates me. But yeah. um, I think, I do think, and perhaps it's seen naively by many this way, but um, I do think the baseline of America is still this incredibly big-hearted, very civil, polite society. Uh, you know, the assumption that you go into a truck stop and you're polite to your waitress because that's her job and she's doing it well and you do your job and you do it well and you should speak to each other as equals mm-hmm. performing a service for others well, right? That should, that's still the baseline of who we are. And you, when you go to other places and see that is not how societies work, that there is much more hierarchical structure and you know all yeah. these other things, you appreciate that more about America. I do still think that's who we are. And yes, it's eroded a bit, but well, it's also, we need it, to put it back. It's not just eroded a bit, but it's also um, fewer and fewer people actually have the experience of going into a truck stop. I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> I guess they like, didn't grow up in are, Idaho where the truck stop is your only option for the, hundreds of miles. Like the urban and rural divide is only getting more because if you live in an urban place, you are more and more in a bubble. You're in a bubble in more and more ways every day, and you're more disconnected from. Um, you're you're just yeah. living a different life. Um, yeah, just making us foreigners to ourselves. <sighs> okay. Well, wow. That was uh, sorry for the long run. No, 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 no. That was actually it was terrific. <laughs> um, before. I let you go. Molly, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Molly McHugh, M-C-K-E-W, uh, or uh, at greatpower.us. They can read what you write. They can read what I write, <laughs> which will soon include a rant about digital Dunkirk. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. Podcasts tend to grow based on word of mouth. So if you want to help more people discover politicology, you can share this episode or one of your favorites with your friend group, your family, or your colleagues. Questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we'd love to hear from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.